This is season two of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is Mobile Suit Breakdown episode 2.8, Pilgrimage, and we're your hosts. I'm Tom, lifelong Gundam fan, and if Quattro is actually Char's new identity, then could Lila be Sayla's new identity? Lila, say la. They're both very strong, very blonde. Eh? Eh? And I'm Nina, and Tom, no. Bad Tom. <laughs> okay. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 144 patrons. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest patrons, Chris K, Sergio N, Rose T, Trevor W, and William P. If you'd like to support Mobile Suit Breakdown and get access to our patron discord, bonus content, and more, you can do so at gundampodcast.com slash Patreon. This week we are covering Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam Episode 7, Escape from Side 1 or Saidowan no Tashutsu. And we research chemical weapons in Gundam and their real-world inspiration, sudden enlightenment, and the bosun's whistle. Plus a tribute to the best character in Gundam. That, that's a bit much. The best character in anime. Uh... <laughs> But first, to help you remember what happened last week, we have a message from our friends at the Titans News Network. Welcome back to TNN, the Titans News Network. Don't forget to subscribe to our sister network, TSPN, where you can watch 24-hour coverage of Titans intramural sports, including the Off-World series, the Titanic Games, and the Omega Bowl. Citizens living in Western North America were affected by power outages last week after an orbital solar battery satellite failed. This is a poignant reminder that nothing in space can be trusted. There is no cause for alarm, however, as the Titans have confirmed that the satellite was damaged following an unlikely but perfectly natural collision with a stray comet. Reached for comment, Federation Forces pilot Lila Milarira confirmed that steps are currently being taken to ensure that nothing like this ever happens again. Ever. Citizens are advised to be on alert for undocumented spacenoids attempting to infiltrate Earth. If you see anyone suspicious, be sure to report them to the authorities right away. Spacenoids can be identified by their shifty looks, aura of disloyalty, and refusal to wear sleeves. In happier astronomical news, if, like me, you were vacationing at one of your luxurious private island resorts in the South Pacific last week, you might have been treated to an unexpected display of shooting stars in the evening sky. Our crack investigative team has confirmed that this was the result of a special Titans operation to decommission the defunct old Federation warship Mont Blanc and turn it into something much more valuable. Entertainment for Earthnoids. 
I think I speak for all of us here at TNN and on Earth when I say thank you, Titans, for giving us all something to look up to. This is TNN, and the next time you look up to space, remember to stand up, salute, and thank our tireless protectors, the Titans. And now the recap for Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam Episode 7, Escape from Side 1. The Alexandria has lost half its complement of mobile suits, and Jared and his men are in disgrace. But Lila points out to Jamaican that the Argama is a deceptive enemy. It and its mobile suits appear amateurish at first, but are actually very skilled. She wonders if they could be new types, like the crew of the White Base, but Jamaican insists that there is no such thing. Blex and Beckoner want to officially make Camille a pilot. He's more than proven himself by now, and they want to see how much better he can be with more training. Camille is leery, feeling like some kind of new type experiment, though Blex insists that his main concern is giving Camille a role on the ship. Still, a soldier at Camille's age? It may be true that the White Base crew were around his age, but he would still like the time to think it over. Quattro adds his own pressure, but Camille is stubborn. What possible difference can his becoming a pilot make? They are interrupted by an announcement. The ship has entered the Side 4 district, and all crew are to put on normal suits and be on alert. Several crew members head to the outside of the ship to watch for any dangerous debris. In the briefing room of the Alexandria, Jamaican begins to plot strategy. They have tracked the Argama to the Side 4 debris field, but still cannot tell whether it is headed for Side 1, Side 2, or the Moon. Lila suggests that they split up. The Bosnia can take a different route, increasing their chances of catching the Argama. Jamaican agrees, but reminds her not to be too anxious for a fight. Speaking to Emma privately, Beckner explains that they have arrived at the colony he wanted her to see, Colony 30. It explains why we started our movement against the Earth Federation government, he tells her. The group that enters Colony 30 is tiny, just Emma, Camille, and Quattro to show them around. As they board, the Bosnia finds them, but can't understand why Ayug would stop here. Could Ayug be using the dead and abandoned colony as a secret base? Lila decides to go in and gather more information before the Alexandria arrives. Entering through an industrial hatch, near where the poison gas canisters remain latched to the colony, Lila and her wingmen see no sign of Ayug activity, but decide to search more thoroughly before returning to the Bosnia. Colony 30 is a wasteland. Its mirrors frozen in place, dry dust whips through the air over cracked ground and lifeless trees. The people who died here died suddenly. They sit on park benches and in bars, slumped over cafe tables, prone on the sidewalk or in their schools, the dry conditions having turned them all into mummies. Some of these dry husks are blown across the landscape like leaves. The dead are too numerous to bury. How can anyone kill like this? Camille shouts. Because they are not killing with their own hands, and do not see the suffering they cause, is Quattro's quiet reply. Emma can only murmur her uncertain agreement as she takes in the horror of this place. She still can't understand why Basque would kill a whole colony full of people just for staging a few protests and demonstrations. Camille walks away from Emma and Quattro, exploring on his own. He is struck by the sight of a woman laid out on the sidewalk, holding her baby in her arms. He's crouched down next to them when Lila finds him. 
Before she can question him, they hear Quattro and Emma coming down the street, and Lila pulls Camille around a corner, her gun pressed to his cheek. While they look for Camille, Emma and Quattro continue their discussion. Emma still sees wiping out an entire colony as a gross overreaction, but Quattro tells her that Earthenoids are fundamentally afraid of space noids. They believe that everyone living in space will become a new type, and that new types are some kind of psychic, that new types with their special powers will become a new ruling class. A furious Lila jumps out of her hiding place, still holding Camille at gunpoint. Basque would never kill so many people for only that reason. You are being deceived by the remnants of the Zabbies. Don't you see that the Earth Federation is becoming the next Zabi clan? Quattro counters. Lila seems startled by this thought, and shoves Camille away so that she can run. Emma shoots as Lila retreats, but it's no use. They return to their ship and prepare to fight. After launching in the Mark II, Camille can sense right away which mobile suit is piloted by Lila, and the two of them chase each other around the colony. Lila is shocked to discover that the pilot she's fighting is the kid she caught on Colony 30, and realizes he must be a new type. Lila is determined that a pilot of her skill and experience won't lose to some kid, even if he is a new type, but the Mark II ducks behind part of the colony, and Lila completely loses sight of it. In fact, Camille has hidden the Mark II in a depression on the outside of the colony, and lies waiting for Lila to come into view. With unnaturally good timing, he fires his beam rifle, sending Lila's Galbaldi bouncing and careening off the outside of the colony. The Mark II darts in, the two mobile suits grapple, neither with clear advantage, until Lila goes to draw the Galbaldi's beam saber. Camille pushes her away and fires the beam rifle directly at the Galbaldi's cockpit. In the moments before the beam kills her, Lila thinks, Don't take this guy lightly, Jared. As the beam strikes and Lila dies, bathed in the pink light of the explosion, she realizes, I admitted that this kid is special and this turned unconsciously into antipathy. This must be what it means to be an old type. Jared watches the explosion from the bridge of the Alexandria and hears Lila's voice call his name. The video feed is overwhelmed by static and Jared begins to weep, thinking of Lila and how he will never be able to show her the good man he will become. To the applause of the Argamas crew, Beckner congratulates Camille on becoming a full-fledged pilot. Blex and Quattro go a step further, calling Camille the second coming of Amuro Rey. But Camille's feelings have not changed. He still has not decided to become a soldier. I'd rather remain as I am now, for a little while longer. Lila! Uh, they had to take the person I like the most. She's so cool, and now she's gone. Would you say that she is your favorite character across all the Gundam that you've seen so far? That's a tall order. It also just makes me uncomfortable because she is a Fetty <laughs> in Zeta, <laughs> right? Like, uh-huh. She, yeah, she's, she's on the side of the baddies to the extent that any side can be called the baddies. She's not a Titan. Except maybe she is now because she's got the patch and she seems to have been, at least on a temporary basis, enrolled into the Titans. I just love how imperious she is with Jared. Her confidence, her whole attitude of, well, I know better than you, and you're a naive young boy. 
but you've got potential, kid. You might someday be a fine man. (laughs) And the way she like zooms in on his face right before she leaves. She's like, ah, cute little puppy dog. You're just so useless. This episode goes a long way through Lila towards humanizing Jared. You kind of feel bad for him at the end of this. She has two conversations with him. And the first one, he comes to her room. He's so demanding. Every time he comes (laughs) to talk to her, it's like, why? Explain it to me. He wants to know why she defended him to Jamaican. And she's like, you weren't listening to me. I didn't defend you. I didn't say anything about you. (laughs) I was talking about what a tough enemy we're fighting. I did find it a little odd slash funny. She lets him in. He's clearly uncomfortable. He was not expecting to find her in a towel. We do get a brief shot of her in the shower that shows her breasts. Again, as far as Gundam goes, that didn't feel super fanservice-y. No. It's very brief. It's a quick pan up. It's mostly about her face in this weird future shower she's in. Just comparing it to last episode, the way Camille looks at Rekua in her like puffy flight suit feels more lewd and sexualized than this little shower scene with Lila. Yeah. So Jared comes in. He realizes <laughs> the state that she's in. <laughs> Is uncomfortable. He starts to leave. She blocks the door. She clearly thinks his discomfort is funny. Yeah. Uh, but then at one point while they're talking, he looks over at her and she's like, don't you dare look at me. <laughs> but she smiles while she says it. <laughs> so I don't know if she's teasing him or what. I don't, I don't quite know what to make of that. It's like she's using what would normally be a source of weakness and discomfort, her state of undress, actually as a way to exert power over him. So that's their first conversation, and their second one, it's right before she leaves on the mission. They're talking a bit about the planning for the mission, and he's asking you know, why she stood up to Jamaican. Because she mentions she knew what the plan was going to be all along. There's only one good plan there. He says, so why make a big deal of it with Jamaican? And she says, I wanted you to see that I don't have time for those kinds of men, like mm-hmm. that I find men like Jamaican useless. And he asks her on a date... And she says, maybe. (laughs) When you prove yourself. When you become the sort of man I can rely on. Exactly. The sort of man I could lean on. That says a lot about Lila's presence and her sort of aggressive, powerful demeanor as being defensive in a way, because she doesn't feel like she's safe around any of these people. She doesn't feel like she can rely on anyone. And so she has to be this powerful, dynamic, totally in control figure. Whereas getting drunk with somebody and relaxing and leaning on them requires that the person she be with be somebody she can rely on, somebody strong enough. That's interesting. You see that as indicative of her like particularly strong and aggressive personality and position. I saw it more as, I don't remember where I read this or heard it, and obviously it's a little bit sort of reductionist when it comes to gender, but that women are attracted to people they can look up to, Hmm. that women need to admire someone to be attracted to them. Mm -hmm. And for Lila, that's a tall order, someone she can look up to, someone she can admire, because she's already such a- Very strong person. Someone that she feels admiration for has to be a pretty outstanding person. Mm -hmm. We're not saying conflicting things. I just think it might come from a place of socialization, like how she's been socialized to think of what makes a good romantic partner. Mm -hmm. Whereas you think it's more about like her unique role and position. The other possibility there, thinking again about how Zeta is very clearly invested in ideas of gender and gender performance. 
when Lila is behaving normally in her role as an officer and as a pilot, she's performing a very masculine role. For her to be able to switch into a feminine role and go on a date with Jared Mm -hmm. requires a very different performance from her. And that requires a very different Jared for her to perform with. Lila has a very surprising reaction to hearing Quattro talk about Colony 30. We know from the episode that she and her shipmates know about the Colony 30 incident. She is not surprised to find the canisters of poison gas still attached to the colony. Right. She and the captain of the Bosnia know that all the civilians here were killed in some kind of operation that poison gas was used. They do mistake a dead body that's blowing in the wind for a live person, but they're not surprised by the the number of dead people. Mm-hmm. However, <laughs> Quattro does his whole breakdown of what happened there. Do you get the feeling that Quattro is like really practiced at this? Yeah. Like this he's is... given this speech a bunch of times. Oh, absolutely. Like maybe AU swings through Colony 30 every time they have a new recruit. We're going to talk about that <laughs> a bit more later because I had some thoughts about that. But he brings up a couple of different points, right? He's anticipating possible what-ifs from Emma. And so he jumps ahead to, you know, you might be thinking that it is in fact Ayug's fault for, you know, inciting and supporting protests here. But if all Earth ever does is think about making things better for Earth, how did he phrase it? Then you're going to get a few protests. Mm. Then he goes on to say that what Earth is really afraid of is that they think people in space are going to become new types, are becoming new types. Two, that new types are psychics, which he's constantly telling people that's not how it works. <laughs> but people don't understand. That's what they think it is. And that psychics would naturally form a kind of new ruling class over the rest of humanity. And that that is what they are really afraid of. And that is why they put so much pressure on the colonies and why they killed everyone in Colony 30. Lila only objects to that last part. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the part that she hears the most clearly. She didn't hear the other explanation, but they're talking about that fear of somebody taking power. Mm -hmm. Would that be enough of a reason to kill all these people? And Quattro says, oh, absolutely. It makes more sense than a lot of the other reasons people do it, like money. And Lila is like, you're a liar. Yeah. And she doesn't say... Bascom would never kill all of these people. She doesn't deny that part. She says Bascom would never kill all of these people for that reason. For only that reason. So she doesn't even necessarily take issue with that being a reason, (laughs) (laughs) but that there must be more to it than Mm -hmm. just that. And I kind of think she's got to be right on this. Quattro has kind of a reductive view of how this works. He's like boiled it down to this one philosophical idea. Old types are afraid of new types. That makes old types do murderous. X, Y, and Z. Yeah, <laughs> mass murderous. And he's got this other line in there about it's because they don't do it with their own hands. And that's very Quattro. Well, that's very Char, but we'll, <laughs> we'll talk about that. But it all seems too neat and clean. Especially for humans. It. Yeah. No rage, no humiliation, no, there's no emotion in it. Well, and he doesn't bring up other factors like 
the intent possibly being to scare other colonies or, you know, there, there's a whole bunch of other possible elements or layers to what happened here that get glossed over in favor of the tidy package. Right. And there's no room for individual humanity in this. It's about these huge, big civilization-spanning trends, the mass population of the people on Earth versus the mass of space noids and old types versus new types. There's no sense of like, oh, Basque is just a psychopath who will do anything. There's no sense of like some of those titans are amoral bullies who feel no compunctions about killing civilians or maybe even take pleasure in it. It's all about these big tidal forces. At the end of this episode, I found myself with a really difficult question about Lila, which is, is she a new type? Because up until this episode, I thought she was. And then during the episode, you feel like she's not? Yeah. What about at the very end? I, I don't know. Yeah? I don't, I don't know. Because, so here's the thing. In all the lead up, we see her fight incredibly well in space. She's fast. She seems to anticipate where attacks are going to be and be gone before they can get there. We see various pilots we respect, like Quattro, notice this about her. That's the kind of piloting skill we've only ever seen from new types before. Mm-hmm. Everything that she tells Jared to do sounds like new type stuff. All the stuff about like projecting your mind into space and feeling the intent of your enemies. She was certainly thinking, or at least teaching Jared to think in a very new type kind of way. Yeah, just everything about that feels like... New type stuff. We get that very humorous <laughs> moment where she brings up new types in her briefing with Jamaican. And he's like, new types are made up. No such thing as new types. <laughs> new types are just imaginary beings created by media hype. Fake news types. <laughs> but she clearly believes that they're real. Yep. That they exist. I'm pretty sure Jamaican does too. They're just that the party line is that they don't exist because they're trying not to create a panic or a perception that maybe the other side has an advantage against them. Yeah, I mean, why else would he get so angry and then storm out and refuse to entertain any further questions? Well, and why else would he have told Basque, like, oh, we might need to relax some of the criteria for joining the Titans if we want to fight these space noids? And this whole thing about this one mobile suit, the one that Quattro is in, for some reason, it seems to affect other mobile suits nearby. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so she clearly has some sense of what a new type is and, and believes them to be real. But then she has her whole series of emotions and reactions when she dies. She's fighting Camille. He manages to set a trap for her, basically, and it's successful. When the attack comes, but before it hits her, she thinks to herself, or not to herself, Jared, look out for this kid. There's something unusual about him. Mm -hmm. Then when the attack hits her, she realizes, oh, the moment I acknowledged that there was something unusual or special or different about this kid we're fighting, I began to feel antipathy toward him. I began to feel antagonism toward him. That's what it means to be an old type. And then she dies. And Jared, off in the Alexandria, hears her voice say, Jared. Jared. Yeah. 
She calls herself an old type, and then she does some long-distance telepathic communication. Maybe. Maybe it's just a metaphor. Maybe he just hears her voice in his head when he realizes that she's died. And he is a wreck. He yes. freaks out. But before we talk about Jared freaking out, Lila here challenges us to think about what actually is a new type. Mm. Because we don't really know what a new type is. We've been told that they're not just espers. And we've seen new type powers range from some sort of psychic communication to maybe being able to anticipate the future. Some people seemed to imply that Char could do that a little bit to almost like remote viewing, because when uh, Amaro was guiding the people of the White Base out of the ruins of Abawaku, he seemed to be able to see not just where everybody was, but where they needed to go in order to get places. And the orphans do that for him when he is escaping. Right. So there's some psychic power. There's some espering going on there. But is there more to it than that? I mean, Lila seems to take the position that if being an old type means automatically rejecting new things, perhaps being a new type is the opposite of that. And being a new type is being receptive to new people, new things, to new ways of being. You could almost call it ultimate receptiveness. Part of the thing is awareness. Mm -hmm. I feel like the one way that you can sum up <laughs> all the various new type powers is a heightened sense of awareness mm -hmm. of everything around you. Receiving communications from other new types, mm -hmm. that feels like something slightly beyond awareness. Also, awareness feels more active. Mm -hmm. Receptiveness is more passive. And this is what she tells Jared in a prior episode. You know, it's not just what you do. You can't simply be strong and fast and good. You also have to be receptive to what the other people around you are doing and thinking and feeling. So perhaps she's wrong when she says that she must be an old type. Or perhaps in that moment of death when she recognizes her own antipathy to Camille, in recognizing it, she's able to move past it, transcend it, and become a new type immediately after she's identified herself as an old type. Because then she sends that last call to Jared, and he receives it, assuming that that actually is a thing that happened and not mere trickery of the show. <laughs> and as you said earlier, he is a wreck. He's sobbing well, and, and screaming and, and jamming at every control he can get his hands on. Uh, the video feed cuts out. It's unclear to me whether he is trying to attack Camille or just get the video feed back or yeah. what uh, he probably doesn't <sighs> even know what he's trying to do. And then we cut immediately from Jared in that, that state of total distress and grief. We cut immediately to the whole crew of the Argama congratulating Camille on his successful first kill. So they're not actually congratulating him on that. They are they? they are congratulating him on joining their crew because they assume that when he went out there and did the mission, that's what he was doing. That he was accepting his position as a pilot with Aug. Because, well, mm -hmm. Black says to him explicitly, you're a full pilot now. And everyone's like, woo, hooray. Right. But would he have been made a full pilot if he had not successfully completed his first mission of defeating Lila in battle? I don't think the mission was kill Lila. You think it was? I mean, the mission, they sent him out wanting to test him, right? To test his potential. Mm -hmm. He showed what he could do. And this is Camille's first kill after seven episodes. 
This is the battle in which he gets his first kills, but he actually kills another pilot who gets between him and Lila at one point. I don't think he killed that guy. I think he just blew the head off of the Galbaldi. I guess it's not explicit, but (laughs) I thought watching the episode that he had done sufficient damage to that mobile suit. (laughs) And maybe he did. Certainly he took that mobile suit out of the fight. Did you get the feeling that Jamaican was hanging Lila out to dry there at the end? Not particularly. Really? Okay. After the way she stood up to him in that first scene, and then again during the briefing, when she takes her ship and goes off, kind of undermining Jamaican's whole plan and his authority, it really felt like at the end there, they could have sent reinforcements. Jared is on the bridge saying like, come on, send me out, send somebody out, send Lila help. And Jamaican is like, no, we'll wait for Ayug to use up more of their resources. And this will teach you a lesson, Jared. I didn't see that as personal. I saw that as an attitude that he has about military resources and people generally, that he sees people as resources to be like carefully husbanded and used for the Titan's purposes. So if there's a Federation ship out there causing Ayug some trouble, like, oh, we should carefully hold back our resources. Mm. I saw that as him being strategic. And yeah, to some degree, I think it's influenced by the relationship between the Federation and the Titans, that he's much more willing to sacrifice Federation resources than he would be Titans resources. It's also worth remembering he's just dressed them down for the fact that they've lost half of their mobile suits in the past couple weeks or however long it's been. Mm -hmm. They're pretty strapped, actually, (laughs) for mobile suits. I think he's very cold and calculating, but I think he's being strategic rather than personal. Oh, see, I look at Jamaican and he seems so mean-spirited and vindictive. I don't know exactly what about him it is that gives me that impression of him. One of our first moments with him is when he slapped Bright on the back, knowing that Bright is injured. It's just, it seems so intrinsic to his personality. But somebody could be mean-spirited and and not personal. He can enjoy hurting people without it necessarily being about who he's hurting. Like the, the slap on the back to Bright might not be because he hates Bright. It might just be because he's like, ha ha ha. Like, I like getting to sneakily harm somebody. (laughs) Well, in that case, is he doing this to get back at Lila for undermining his authority? Or is he doing this because he wants to hurt Jared? Just for giggles. I may be going to sound like a horrible person, but I'm not sure Jamaican is entirely wrong there. Hmm. Here's the thing. Obviously, grief is normal and natural, and Jared really liked Lila. Maybe even loved her. They didn't know each other very long. Hard to say. But he cared about her very much. And his reactions are normal and natural. But to some degree, someone who is in charge of a military vessel needs to be able to suppress that while battle is underway. (laughs) He starts freaking out and his reaction is, Lila is hurt or dead and we need to do something. Somebody do something. You know, he's frantic. But that's not logical. That's not strategic. He has lost sight of what their purpose is. But on the other hand, as much as Jamaican might be giving him theoretically good advice, Jamaican is not, from the evidence we've seen, a particularly good commander either, for all that Jamaican doesn't care at all about the individual humans under his command. No, I'm I'm not suggesting Jamaican is a role model. (laughs) (laughs) Lila is a role model. We've seen Lila lose a subordinate before. In her first episode, Quattro manages to take out one of Lila's wingmen. And you can tell that it upsets her, 
but she keeps things under control. She maintains authority. She doesn't make a big deal out of it. She is focused on getting herself and her remaining wingman to safety. Although as much as we like Lila, in that moment, it seems like she's mostly concerned with her reputation as a commander rather than actually sad about losing that soldier. True. True enough. Well, she has that whole, I sort of hope we were fighting the Red Comet because otherwise that was embarrassing. Maybe the message in this bit with Jared is that the things that make you human and relatable and likable, because this is the most likable Jared has been ever in this show, are exactly the things that have to be stomped out of you and ground out of you in order for you to be an effective member of the military. Speaking of grinding and stomping all of the soft, squishy human bits out of you to make you a more effective member of the military, Quattro's Colony 30 field trip. I think we should actually step back even further and look at Colony 30 as itself. It's the setting for most of the episode. It's almost a character in the episode. Mm -hmm. Why is it still here? As opposed to... As opposed to having been broken down, destroyed, something. You know, what is the story? We know the Ayug story because Quattro gives it to us. What is the Federation or Titans story? Because having not destroyed it, one imagines they had to come up with some kind of an explanation for why all the people in this colony are dead. Yeah. What is the version of this story that Lila and the captain of the Bosnia know? As we discussed earlier, they know a lot about what happened here. Well, and is it different from the story that was given to the public? Mm-hmm. Obviously, we can't know. I assume they blamed it to some degree on Ayug. Either that Ayug did the gassing, possibly, or that there was an Ayug cell here, and something went wrong in the mission, and it killed everyone. In some way, they blamed it on... Ayug, I'm Presumably, sure. yeah. Or Xeon remnants, to the extent that that's different from Ayug. But you look at this place, and like Tom pointed out before, we can tell it is used by Ayug as an object lesson in the horrors of the Federation. Mm-hmm. Right? That the Federation is, in fact, a, a brutal, monstrous entity. And when Captain Beckner is talking to Emma as they are approaching Colony 30, he says something like, this is where it all began. This is what started our war against the Titans and against the Federation. Though that can't be literally true because once they're in Colony 30, Quattro says that Ayuk was actually organizing this demonstration here in the first place. It's possible, though, that Ayug was not a paramilitary organization sure. prior to this event. Sure. They may have been doing more political organizing. You know, they had organized protests right. and rallies, but this was what pushed them to become a paramilitary organization, for instance. Mm -hmm. But it struck me that the Federation see that this Ayug ship has gone to Colony 30, and they're like, oh, that would be a really good hiding place for a base. Like, no one would think to go there. Mm-hmm. It never occurs to them the symbolic power of the place itself. It never occurs to them that it has that value. And they could have been using it themselves, right? This is what happens to rebels. Or this is what Ayug causes to happen to colonies. They could have been using it themselves, but never even occurred to them. And I think it shows a huge lack of imagination that they haven't acknowledged the power it would have for Ayug's recruiting. Unless 
As we hypothesized early on in this season, the Titans need Ayug, because as long as Ayug exists, the Titans can keep accumulating power. If they ever defeated Ayug completely, there'd be no point for the Titans to exist anymore, and all of their special privileges, their plus one rank bonus versus regular Federation officers, their little fiefdom on grips, all of that would go away. You also mentioned before how it's very clear Quattro has given this speech and this tour many times. Yep. He shows them Colony 30 and explains its significance in a very practiced manner. I had a horrible thought, which was, Camille asks why no one has been buried. Quattro says there are too many people to bury. That's a possibility. It's also possible that Colony 30 would not have sufficient visual impact if there weren't bodies everywhere. You're not wrong about that. And they've shown themselves mercenary enough. Like, the visual impact of encountering all these mummies who died so quickly they are standing in the street or sitting at a bar or sitting on a park bench is admittedly much stronger than if you got there and it was empty and there was a big memorial stone. It would seriously undermine the effectiveness of this little pilgrimage that they're on. When we were watching this section and Quattro kept giving these answers to unasked questions, like when he tells Emma, oh, you're probably thinking, why Ayug is at fault for this too? But in fact, let me tell you, I've thought about this a lot, and here is my rejoinder to the question you haven't asked. This is both a very effective rhetorical technique and probably indicates that these are questions Quattro has gotten before, like a very practiced tour guide at each of the highlights. He knows what the people are probably thinking. In this case, I'm not sure he's right because Emma's reactions don't indicate that she's really thinking those thoughts. But whether she is or not, Quattro seems to be accomplishing his goal here, which is to make sure that Emma Sheen and Camille Bedan are sufficiently converted to the Ayuk cause. And we cannot leave Colony 30 without talking about the visuals. It reminded me strongly of the Texas colony from yeah. First Gundam, even down to a little like mock saloon. Well, so two things. They explain the state of it, the dryness, the wind. The dust. As being that the mirrors are stuck in place. So there's no day-night cycle. Which is the same thing that happened on Texas. Exactly. It doubles down on the fact of the colony being dead. Not only are there no living people, there are no plants, there is no greenery, there's no life at all, not just no human life. It also highlights the sort of frontier perception and frontier nature of the colonies, that they're almost little like mock Wild West towns mm -hmm. in some ways. Not across the board, a lot of the buildings we see look perfectly contemporary and normal for the time, but then you have a little saloon with a barrel out front <laughs> and the, the push doors, you know, almost like the colonies were designed by somebody who wanted to play into those pioneering stereotypes. Mm -hmm. And it's entirely possible that many of the people who went to the colonies had that perception about themselves as space pioneers and so would have embraced that thinking. It is horrible. But I think that's played with a lot of subtlety. Emma and Camille almost don't talk at all. They speak very little throughout their time on Colony 30, and almost only when spoken to. And then Emma calls out to Camille, like, where are you? You'll get lost. But for the most part, they don't speak. When Camille encounters his first mummy and its head falls off, he gags. 
Later, he sees what looks like a school or a daycare, and we can look into the building a bit, or into a sort of like covered portico area of the building, and we see small bodies laying there. But there's no close-up, he doesn't say anything. We just see it, briefly. And then later, he does kneel down next to a woman who has collapsed while holding her baby. And the focus is on the baby, not on the woman holding them. Mm -hmm. And Camille reaches down and sort of lays a hand on the mummy. Well, he rearranges the arm of the mother mummy so that it's holding the baby mummy a little bit closer. And it's so sad and so awful, but without saying a word. Mm -hmm. And even Quattro doesn't address that more sort of intimate horror of it. He's talking about all this big picture stuff. He's not trying to make them identify with all these individual people. Is that intentional on Quattro's part? Or is it more that he doesn't really care about the individual people? I don't know. <laughs> when it comes to Quattro, I'm really not sure. I think rhetorically, it's better. I think if he tried too hard to incite that compassion and that empathy, it would feel false. Mm -hmm. Like it's better just to let the people see and feel it. Uh, and then finally, we have the additional horror of these people who have died being rendered objects, basically, being rendered uh, obstacles and hazards as they get blown around in the wind because they're they're dried out and much lighter and it's very windy and there's something skin crawly yeah. <laughs> about seeing that. You know, something flies at Camille's head and we're like, uh, we're like Lila, oh, look out. And you realize it's a person. Mm -hmm. Camille does seem very preoccupied here with childhood, with children, with little children's relationship with their parents. Well, can't necessarily extrapolate this out, but I'm going to anyway. <laughs> Camille <laughs> makes the point about his parents that they made choices that made their lives the way that they were. That, that they chose. But kids don't get to choose in a way that shapes the world around them. And so for all the horror of Colony 30, is he thinking to himself, well, but these adults made a decision. They didn't know that the consequences were going to be what they were, but they chose. Hmm. These kids didn't choose. I thought of it more in terms of his just being fixated on these childhoods that have been arrested. Camille is still alive, but like them, his childhood was also stolen from him. He didn't have the kind of childhood he wanted. He didn't have the normal life that he wanted. And so to see all of these young kids who were just snuffed out all at once very much connects to what Camille is going through himself and what he's thinking about himself. And I think that links to what he says at the end of the episode, where they're all congratulating him, you know, you're going to be the next Amuro Ray. And he says, I'd just like to stay myself for a little bit longer. I'd like to stay what I am for another minute. And the sense there of like, I wish that it were possible to preserve this pure, innocent thing, but it's not. I think we can more or less sum up Camille's whole deal during this episode as ambivalence about growing up. <laughs> Or even resistance to becoming an adult, to growing up. Because they talk to him at the very beginning of the episode about making him a full pilot. And they point out, you know, we have more pilots than we have mobile suits right now. We wouldn't need you all the time, but we could start incorporating you into the life of the ship. Because he is very separate. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have duties. He doesn't have a role. And he questions 
their desire to do this despite his age. They make the old the old point about how historically there, there have been fifteen year old soldiers before, and he's not fifteen. He's what seventeen. Mm-hmm. Uh, which he seems to find very morally questionable. <laughs> he says so to Quattro. He does go out on the mission. When everyone starts congratulating him on being a member of the crew, he's very quick to say, I haven't decided that yet. He's flirting with adulthood, right? Like every time he's stolen the Mark II and hopped into it, he's sneakily stealing adulthood for a moment and then rejecting it. I'm not a pilot. I just sometimes pilot it. You know, what did he think was going to happen when he ran away with Ayug? Like, did he think he was going to be able to live on a ship and not be a soldier? Did he think he was just going to change identities and go live on another colony? Like, it's not clear that he thought about what the repercussions of his actions would be. Mm -hmm. uh, and it contributes to his isolation and his loneliness. As long as he is not a part of the crew and not contributing to life aboard the ship, he's not just not part of the team. He's also a burden. Well, he's the only child aboard the Argama. Unlike the white base where everyone was a child and therefore everyone was an adult altogether, Camille's the only one aboard the Argama who enjoys the privilege of deciding whether or not he is a member of the crew, deciding whether or not he's going to be an adult and accept all of the responsibilities that come with that or try to preserve the innocence of childhood a little bit longer. And Emma watching his resistance thinks to herself, he senses something that I don't. Mm -hmm. She's not much older than him, is she? No, I don't think she is. She certainly gives the impression of being the next youngest after Camille. But also of maturity. She has crossed that threshold. She is an adult in a way that Camille is not, at least not all the time. I read something interesting recently, and I can link in the show notes, but someone was wondering about the popularity of Marvel movies in Japan, and why are they not the runaway hits that they are in the United States? And there was this whole discussion about who are your heroes? Because in, in Japanese media, heroes are usually kids. In a lot of Western media, heroes are adults. Characters are in a hurry to become adults because they associate adulthood with freedom. In Japan, childhood is associated with freedom. And so your heroes are young people. And we feel that here. Adulthood is responsibility. And duty and having to answer to other people. Adulthood is all the things that you need to do. And it does seem that Camille knows he can't put it off forever, but he wants to put it off for now. And at the end, the whole crew of the Argama is gathered around to congratulate him. And maybe they're congratulating him on his promotion, incorporation into the crew. Maybe they're congratulating him on his successful mission or on getting his first kill uh, as a mobile suit pilot. However you look at that scene, it feels like a coming of age moment. Everyone is saying, you know, congratulations, welcome. You're one of us now. You're a member of the crew. You're a member of AUG. You're an adult. You're a real pilot. The Gundam Mark II, which is your adult body, your adult power, is yours now all the time. It's your privilege and it's your responsibility. And Camille tries to reject it again. And he says, you can't force that on me. That's a thing I get to decide when I'm ready and I'm not yet. But he may not be right about that. It may not be a thing he gets to choose. Just like no part of his life has really been up to his choice so far. It also harkens back a bit to Quattro's philosophical conversation about how you know what to do. Because he says, oh, we'll just do what you feel is right. If what you're doing feels right, it probably is. But once Camille is a member of the crew, he's subject to orders. <laughs> <laughs> 
up until now, he's been doing what he feels is right, which is a lot of jumping into the Mark II when people don't want him to. He gives up some of the freedom to act on his own feelings and impulses once he becomes a member of a crew. Theoretically. He could still do that, but he'd be subject to discipline. Why he has not been subject to discipline up until now, I don't know. At one point he is like, oh, I thought you were going to throw me in the brig. Perhaps they're being extra nice because they're trying to entice him onto their side and they'd be stricter later. Hard to say. But one imagines he would have considerably less freedom once he accepts being a crew member. And it's also clear that they don't want him, Camille, as a crew member. They want him, actually Amuro Ray Part 2, as a crew member. Because they keep saying this. They keep saying, you could be the next Amuro Ray. When Camille is talking to Quattro, Camille is sort of talking about why he should join Ayug. And Quattro says, well, we can't find Amuro. We need an Amuro. We can't find him. You're here. Camille kind of sounds like Amuro. You could be our guy. I get why that would upset Camille, or at least give him pause, but let's be real. No one is irreplaceable. When any of us get hired for any sort of job, it's not because they need us specifically and we are the best and greatest and they must have us to do that job. No, they need someone to do the job. And they're going to get the person with the, the closest skills to the description or the best skills for the job. But it's not about you. Like... We're all cogs, man. <laughs> Remember that MSB is a two-cog operation? You're pretty irreplaceable here. That's sweet of you to say, but absolutely untrue. <laughs> I mean, our rapport would be very difficult to replicate. But you you get my point. Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's very naive. And not necessarily bad, but something that most of us need to learn to grow out of. To want in a, in a workplace or a big organization to be totally necessary as ourselves, right? But you're not. <laughs> Maybe the message is that workplaces and big organizations are bad. Which is fine, is a fine takeaway. <laughs> but in big organizations, like, none of us is that important. <laughs> we should be. That's fine. That's fair. I just think, like... <laughs> And admittedly, it would be less jarring, perhaps, if they were like, we need a new type instead of we need an Amaro. <laughs> it could be worse. They could need a Lala. Quattro's not saying it, but I think he's thinking it. Amaro was useless to Char. Lala was very useful. Well, but then Lala succumbed to her new type abilities and became one with the universe and is still, like, knocking around out there, apparently occasionally contacting people because... Both Quattro and Amaro were like, is that Lala trying to get in touch with me? <laughs> I thought I blocked her number. Yo, Lala, what up? You get bored of the expanse of space and time. <laughs> you up? <laughs> Speaking of replacing people, doesn't Camille kind of look a lot like Garma? I don't think so at all. Really? No? Garma's hair was much more sleek. It wasn't so curly. Mm. And the face was very different. I think the face was more similar than you think. Okay, well, you're wrong. <laughs> But there are a bunch of times in this episode when people are making very conscious callbacks to the events of the One Year War. In the beginning, we get Lila telling Jamaican that the Argama is like the white base come again. And then we get that funny moment of him looking at like a staticky photograph of the Argama that makes it look very much like the white base and going, nah, I don't see the connection. Well, he asked her to explain what she means, and it has nothing to do with the shape of the ship. It has to do with this perception that as you're coming up to it, it, it looks amateurish. 
It doesn't present itself with traditional defenses. It doesn't present itself like a traditional ship. But then you come up to it and you find, actually, it defends itself very well. Same thing with Camille piloting the Mark II. You get this impression of amateurishness, which is fair. He doesn't really know what he's doing. He's done this half a dozen times. But there's a lot of raw ability behind that mm -hmm. that makes up for some of that rough presentation. And we know that the white base was like that because Matilda and other higher placed people in the Federation talked about, oh, amateurs come up with the best ideas. Right. Like they didn't give the white base any training because they wanted to see what the white base would come up with on their own without that background. And then later in the episode, Quattro has just explained his theory for why the Earthnoids committed this atrocity. And Lila says, you're wrong. You're being deceived by zombie propaganda. And Quattro says, don't you see that the Federation are the new zombies? And Lila says, no, you're the zombie. And Quattro says, am not, you're the zombie. So everybody is still obsessed with the events and the philosophies and the import of the One Year War. And everyone is sort of trying to fight it all over again and redefine what it was all about and what it really meant. And it's, I think, worth remembering that to some degree, Quattro blames the post-war recovery on Earth for part of what's created the rift between Earthnoids and Spacenoids. Earth really concerned itself just with fixing Earth up again, with repairing the damage done by the war on Earth, and didn't really concern itself with the colonies at all, despite the number of people living in space, and that that was a big part of why Ayug came into existence. And that's sort of the natural result of a situation where all of the political power is concentrated on Earth, and the colonies don't really have their own independent, autonomous power to direct their own affairs and handle their own reconstruction. Fun, weird sci-fi moment. When the Argama enters that debris field, they use human spotters. They send a bunch of people out to like spacewalk <laughs> outside the ship and look for asteroids and bits of debris that need to be dodged. They don't do it with sensors. They don't do it with cameras. Actual human people. That's pretty cool. Well, so, uh, why? <laughs> Minofsky particles? Maybe. That's sort of the practical in-universe science reason. But one of the main through lines of Gundam is that with all of this new technology between the Minofsky particles and the mobile suits, individual human people and their abilities matter. This felt like an episode that tried to do a lot with facial expressions and very little with spoken dialogue. There were some funny, weird interactions <laughs> between Blex and Beckoner and Emma. Emma is one of the spotters outside the Argama looking for uh, meteorites and other things that need to be dodged. And they note that she's very good at it. And Blex says, oh, well, she wasn't a Titan for nothing. And Beckoner is like, ex-Titan, remember? And Blex sort of goes, hmm, and frowns. So he clearly still feels some skepticism as to whether or not they've turned Emma, whether or not they can trust her, whether or not she's really one of them. Oh, see, I thought rather than skepticism about Emma, he's expressing some displeasure about how invested in Emma Beckner has gotten. Yeah, Beckner has a crush. Every time he thinks about her, he looks nervous or he, he, smi bashful. he smiles <laughs> uncomfortably <laughs> or laughs. And then he tells Quattro, like, oh, where's Emma? Uh, I don't know. Why? Oh, just I need to talk to her. Uh, <laughs> oh, sure. I'll send her up to the bridge. 
his conversation with Emma, he's laughing and looks a little uncomfortable and a little... It's very obvious we're meant to understand he has a crush on her. Once they arrive at Colony 30, it switches off completely and he's all business. But he clearly has some feels. And Emma's reaction is very neutral. She does not seem to acknowledge his display <laughs> in any way. Very yes sir, no sir. I think she's clever enough to have picked up on it. Oh, yeah. Especially after seeing her with Camille in the previous episode. Oh, yeah. Emma's not oblivious to the interests of the men around her. But Camille, she can tease because Camille is a child and not a member of the crew and certainly not her superior officer. Right. So she's not encouraging Beckner, but she's also not telling him, hey, cut it out. He also hasn't crossed a line that we've seen. Yeah. His interest is obvious, but he hasn't asked her out or touched her or made any comments that would be like uncomfortable. He's showing her a certain amount of favoritism. There's a excessive friendliness given their respective positions. Mm -hmm. But as I pointed out before, this is all done with almost no dialogue. <laughs> this is all conveyed just through people's facial expressions and tone of voice on the handful of things that they do say. And his uncomfortable laughs. Oh, yeah, that's true. The, the laughter, the body language, everything about it. <laughs> mm, lieutenant. <laughs> And now, we research and discuss chemical weapons, sudden enlightenment, and the bosun's whistle. If you see a reference to a poison gas attack in a modern anime, or really to any terrorist attack on a population center, especially a demilitarized one, I can pretty much guarantee you that it is a reference to the devastating Tokyo subway attacks, the worst terrorist attack on Japanese soil, and by most measures, the worst attack against Japan since the end of World War II. In a coordinated, simultaneous attack on five separate subway trains, zealous devotees of the apocalyptic Aum Shinrikyo cult dropped newspaper-wrapped packets of the deadly nerve agent Sarin on the floors of subway cars, punctured them with specially prepared, sharpened umbrellas, and then fled as the liquid Sarin evaporated into the air. More than 5,000 people were exposed to the toxin. A thousand of them were seriously affected. Twelve were killed, and somewhere around 50 were permanently disabled by their injuries. Most of those who were affected by the attack are still experiencing the after-effects today. Like the 9-11 attacks in the United States, the Tokyo subway attacks left deep psychological scars on an entire generation of Japanese people, and created waves in Japanese art, including anime, that can still be seen today. At some point, we will definitely need to talk about Aum Shinrikyo and its leader, who convinced his followers that he had awakened his own psychic powers and was going to lead them into a utopian future made up of those who had developed psychic powers, after an apocalyptic third world war burned away all the shadowy elites who were using their influence to keep the world from changing, and who does that sound like? But the Tokyo subway attacks happened in 1995, a decade after Zeta Gundam. So why the focus on poison gas now? We should start with the little bit of information that we can glean from Zeta itself about the gas in question. It's called G3 gas, or sometimes GG gas. We can see that it acts very quickly, but that it doesn't do much damage to the bodies of the people it kills. The mummies of Colony 30 are the way they are because of the colony's uncontrolled climate, 
not because of the gas. We also know that the gas became inert at some point after it was used. Otherwise, the AUG field trips here would be a good deal more hazardous, and they'd have to keep their helmets closed. I know that there are some additional details revealed in later Gundam shows, but that is spoiler territory, and we're not going to go there. Rest assured, though, that I am aware of them. There are no important contradictions with what I am going to say, and you do not need to at me about that one scene in that one show. Now, the history of chemical warfare is long, tragic, pretty gross, and thankfully mostly irrelevant to Zeta, so I'm just going to give you some brief highlights. Lowlights? Ugh, lights. We know that toxic smoke was used in China as far back as 1000 BCE, and we have archaeological evidence of Sasanian Persians using gas weapons to kill Roman soldiers in the 3rd century CE. Wow. Native Taino warriors used a chemical weapon based on spicy peppers against Spanish conquistadors in the 1400s. Leonardo da Vinci designed a chemical asphyxiant around the same time, but what we think of as a modern chemical weapon, which is to say an artillery shell or a bomb that releases a gas capable of killing mass numbers of people, was first proposed in the 1800s in Britain during the Crimean War, and in the United States shortly afterward during the Civil War. Fortunately, these proposals were rejected, in the British case because chemical weapons were judged to be a bad way of conducting warfare, and in the American case because the army chief of ordnance at the time was famously opposed to new ideas. This is the same guy who rejected repeating rifles. Oh my god. Because he thought they would make the soldiers fire in an undisciplined fashion. Huh. <laughs> in 1899, all of the major powers of the world, save one, agreed to a ban on chemical weapons called the Hague Declaration Concerning Asphyxiating Gases. That one dissenting vote was the United States, represented by Navy officer and strategist Alfred Thayer Mahan. That guy! This is his second appearance on MSB, and you can learn more about him in episode 1.24, Making Amends. Why did we talk about him before? He's the one who thought that submarine warfare wasn't going to be a big deal and that raiding your enemy's naval shipping wasn't important, that you should just That's try to right. fight the enemy fleet in one big engagement. Yeah. Old school strategist that a whole bunch of people studied and then turned out to be very wrong, at least for modern warfare. <laughs> In 1907, the 1899 Hague Declaration was expanded and reiterated as the Hague Convention on Land Warfare, which again banned chemical weapons. And again, all of the great powers agreed to it. And then World War I happened, and everyone promptly started gassing each other. At first, they were cute about it. They used tear gas and said that that didn't count as a poisonous weapon under the terms of the convention. Or they used a gas projector and said that didn't count because the treaty only banned firing gas-filled shells. But soon these games were abandoned, and effectively unrestricted chemical warfare began, with each side trying to outmatch the other for awfulness. This reached its apex with mustard gas, a truly monstrous weapon that just ruins bodies and kills slowly, painfully, and horribly. And that is all I'm going to say about how mustard gas functions. World War II saw dramatically less use of chemical weapons. And the reason for that seems to have been mostly a case of mutually assured destruction. Every major combatant believed that every other major combatant was sitting on massive secret stockpiles of chemical weapons, ready to deploy them in retaliation the moment somebody else broke the seal. 
This fear was particularly felt on the Axis side, because as we've talked about many times before, both Germany and Japan had dramatically less access to petroleum, and thus less access to ethylene, which is necessary for the production of mustard gas. But what Germany did have was a newly developed type of chemical weapon, and here we find the link to Gundam, because in the 1930s and early 1940s Germany developed the first nerve agents. These were designated the G-series. Tabun was G-A, Sarin was G-B, Chloroserin was G-C, Soman was G-D, Ethylserin was G-E, and Cycloserin was G-F. Gundam's GG or G3 gas might then be a hypothetical future next entry in the G series of nerve agents. And in terms of their characteristics, the G series are basically a perfect match for the gas as I described it earlier. They kill quickly, but they leave the body superficially intact, and they are non-persistent, meaning that they cease to be lethal relatively quickly once they have been released. Sarin in particular is colorless and odorless, which would explain why the people of Colony 30 died without any warning. Now when I say that chemical weapons were mostly not used by great powers against each other after World War I, this is both true and misleading, because they were used extensively in conflicts where one side had them and the other lacked the means to retaliate in kind. Mussolini's Italy used chemical weapons in Libya and Ethiopia. Spain and France used them against rebels in Spanish Morocco, the British used them against the Red Army in Russia, the Soviets used them to thwart a peasant uprising and in their invasions of China and Afghanistan, and the Nazis used them in the Holocaust. And in the 1960s, Egypt used them in Yemen. But perhaps foremost in Tomino's mind, Japan used chemical weapons on a massive scale against the Chinese before and during World War II. In fact, if you look at pictures from that invasion, you will see Japanese soldiers wearing gas masks and helmets that, when taken together, make them look suspiciously like Zaku's. And then came the 1980s. We've mentioned before that the 1980s brought a renewed tension into the Cold War, and one of the consequences of that was a U.S. decision to restart its chemical weapons development programs, ending a decade-long moratorium. But more significantly for the world, and for Gundam, in late 1980, Saddam Hussein's Iraq launched a full-scale invasion of Iran. The Iraqi leadership expected this to be a swift and total victory. After all, the post-revolutionary Iranian government was newly established and isolated in the international community. Their army had just been purged of most of its senior officers, and their military equipment was all Western-made, which meant that they could only get spare parts by importing them from the very same Western countries that had been allies of the previous Iranian government. But contrary to every expectation, the people of Iran rallied around their new government, combining their regular army with the separate paramilitary Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, which we are going to have to come back to one of these days because they resemble the Titans in more than a few ways. Iran counterattacked and turned the war into a bloody stalemate complete with trench warfare, reminiscent of nothing so much as the First World War except that it lasted twice as long. In all, the Iran-Iraq war ground on from late 1980 to late 1988. Or, in Gundam terms, from Soldiers of Sorrow to Shah's counterattack. As soon as it became clear that there would be no easy or quick resolution to the war, Iraq began developing chemical weapons, mustard gas, and nerve agents. These were probably deployed on a limited basis as early as 1980, but full-scale deployment started in 1983, 
and by 1984 it was being reported in the international press. This was the most extensive, flagrant, and widely known use of poison gas since the end of World War I, and it was happening exactly when Zeta Gundam was being made. During my research, I came upon a quote from that British official, who was Secretary of the Science and Art Department, which, by the way, was not the Science and Art Department of the Army, it was the Science and Art Department. They were responsible for, like, funding orchestras and, and also scientific experiments. horrifying scientific research. <laughs> also good scientific research, also horrifying scientific research. This was the guy who originally proposed using poison gas-filled artillery shells during the Crimean War. His idea, you will remember, was rejected because the Ordnance Department considered it to be a bad way of conducting warfare. Not appropriate. Not sporting. His name, by the way, in a stroke of the most incredible irony, was actually Playfair. <laughs> Lion Playfair. In response to the rejection of his idea, he said something that reminded me a lot of Tem Ray, designer of the Gundam, back at the very beginning of Mobile Suit Gundam. Quote, There was no sense in this objection. It is considered a legitimate mode of warfare to fill shells with molten metal, which scatters among the enemy and produces the most frightful modes of death. Why a poisonous vapor which would kill men without suffering is to be considered illegitimate warfare is incomprehensible. War is destruction and the more destructive it can be made with the least suffering, the sooner will be ended that entire barbarous method of protecting national rights. The inventors and the strategists who dreamed up aerial bombing and strategic bombing of population centers said much the same sort of thing, and so did Tem Ray. If we can just make war destructive enough, if we can just make weapons powerful enough, then people will, no, people must abandon it. But that never seems to work. Each new innovation, each new bomb or gun or gas or mobile suit or megaparticle cannon just seems to spur demand for the next one even bigger than that. It's interesting because there's this sense of, well, we already do X, Y, and Z that are horrible. Mm -hmm. And so making these thin line distinctions about like, oh, but that thing is too horrible <laughs> feels a little ridiculous. Like, when we were already firebombing cities, which I talked about a little bit in a previous episode, and if you want to have nightmares, read descriptions of what that was like to be in a city that was being firebombed. The atomic bomb doesn't seem like that big a deal by comparison, partially because they didn't know what the effects of the radiation would be long term, so they didn't take that into account, but just in terms of, like, what it was going to do to a city and to the people in it. It was like six of one, half dozen of the other, in terms of horribleness. Mm -hmm. But so much of the progress of humanity has been stepping away from, oh, well, we used to do, <laughs> and so that's fine. And instead saying like, well, we used to, but we don't want to be people who do that anymore. Mm -hmm. Society's making decisions about things that are no longer acceptable. Child labor, for instance. <laughs> <laughs> ironic in the Gundam case. I was going to say child soldiers. As we covered in the previous season, it was startlingly late in history that everyone agreed not to do that anymore. Well, everyone, quote, right. end quote, right. agreed. Right. <laughs> quote, not to, quote, do <laughs> that, quote, anymore. 
But the people who dream up these weapons always seem to believe that if war can be made more destructive but less horrible, then it can be ended quickly and with the minimum of suffering. But that never seems to actually work out that way. And Quattro, when he's talking to Camille and Emma, seems to be expressing a contrary point, that war needs to be horrible, that the more horrible it is, the better. If it's not horrible, then it's easy, and war needs to be hard. One could argue that a big part of the reason that we, the United States, have been at war all this time is because for the great majority of our population, it is painless. There's no rationing. Most of us don't have to be soldiers. Mm -hmm. Most of us don't even, like, personally know yeah. people who serve. And so, like, part of the reason that we finally got out of Vietnam is because people were tired of sending their friends, husbands, sons, brothers, selves to mm -hmm. die. <laughs> Let's talk about something less depressing. At the moment of Lila's death. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now I'm depressed again. <laughs> I was really excited to do that after you were like, let's talk about something less depressing. <laughs> you monster. <laughs> At the moment of Lila's death, she is washed out by a bright light and has a sudden realization about herself and the universe. Namely that being an old type means having antipathy for people who are different from you, people who are special. Tom mentioned that the combination of the way the scene is animated, her lines, and the voice acting, as well as the substance of her realization, made him think of sudden, moment-of-death enlightenment. As a concept, it sounded familiar to both of us, but only in the vaguest sense, so it was time to do some digging. It took a little while to find what I was looking for, and along the way, I read a few forum threads about Buddhism, mostly by English speakers who practice some form of Buddhism, and let me tell you, there is a lot of discussion about whether enlightenment feels like death, or even causes death. <laughs> Do you die immediately upon achieving enlightenment is a question I saw come up more than once. I think if they were ready for enlightenment, they would not ask that question. You are... Probably right, but I think it's natural to be curious. <laughs> In English, the concept of sudden enlightenment is called subitism, from the French phrase illumination subite, which means sudden awakening. I apologize for my pronunciation. And we use a French term because of the famous French sinologist, an academic studying China, uh, Paul de Mieville. His 1947 book, Mirror of the Mind, was widely read in the United States, and addresses subitism versus gradualism. Essentially, depending on the particular branch of Buddhism and the historical time period, there have been conflicting ideas about enlightenment, or bodhi, that it was achieved through practice over time and by gradual accretion of insight, or that it was instantaneous, sudden, and direct. By many interpretations, these two were not mutually exclusive. <laughs> Sometimes one followed the other, or each pertained to different kinds of knowledge or realization. I saw some where they said you needed to have a sudden insight first, and then you started the gradual process from there. Things like that. The meaning of enlightenment is not explicitly defined in early Buddhist texts. To quote one scholar of Middle Indo-Aryan language, K.R. Norman, it is not at all clear what gaining bodhi means. 
We are accustomed to the translation enlightenment for bodhi, but this is misleading. It is not clear what the Buddha was awakened to or at what particular point the awakening came. Huh. More precise definitions of enlightenment or liberating insight developed over time. The Subhitist versus Gradualist split first appeared in China in the 5th century as part of Chan Buddhism, and Subhitism made its way to Japan when the Rinzai sect of Zen Buddhism took root in the 12th century. There's some indication that the idea of sudden enlightenment was being put forth by other Buddhists in Japan before that time, but that's when it became part of a mainstream Buddhist sect. So the idea of sudden enlightenment or insight would have been familiar to our writing team. We should probably do deeper research on Zen Buddhism at some point, because it had widespread influence on arts and culture in Japan. But for now, we'll just focus on the enlightenment piece. I found two stories that address this idea. However, I'm going to be using names and terms in languages I don't speak. Thank you for your patience, and I apologize <laughs> for any errors. First, we have Longnu, Dragon Girl, the daughter of the Dragon King of the East Sea. She appears in the Lotus Sutra and in several folktales. In the Lotus Sutra, she is described thusly. There is the daughter of the Naga King, Sagara, who is only eight years old. She is wise, her faculties are sharp, and she well knows all the faculties and deeds of sentient beings. She has attained the power of recollection. She preserves all the profound secret treasures of the Buddhas, enters deep in meditation, and is well capable of discerning all dharmas. She instantly produced the thought of enlightenment and has attained the stage of non-retrogression. She has unhindered eloquence and thinks of sentient beings with as much compassion as if they were her own children. Her virtues are perfect. Her thoughts and explanations are subtle and extensive, merciful and compassionate. She has a harmonious mind and has attained enlightenment. She sounds pretty cool. I'd hang out with her. Coolest eight-year-old. <laughs> The important part for Zen Buddhists being that bit about instantly producing the thought of enlightenment. She also goes on to become an acolyte of the Bodhisattva Avalokitesvara. A Bodhisattva is a being who has attained enlightenment but does not achieve nirvana because they want to stay behind and help other sentient beings reach freedom from suffering. Avalokitesvara's name in Sanskrit means something like he who looks down upon sound as in looking down compassionately and hearing the pleas of the suffering. Oh, I thought it was going to be like, ugh, sound. Avalokitesvara has numerous incarnations, but throughout East and Southeast Asia is typically depicted as a woman. In this same region, she is a goddess of mercy and has different local names in different countries. In Japan, she is called Kanon and is hugely mm, heard important. Of exactly. She's a huge part of Pure Land Buddhism. I also found out when Christianity was outlawed in Japan, after some of the missionaries had come and converted a few people, many of them worshipped in secret by disguising figures of the Virgin Mary holding the baby Jesus as canon holding a baby, ah. which was very common in artistic depictions because canon is a goddess of mercy. She's often associated with children. So that was a neat little tidbit. The second story actually comes from Hinduism instead of Buddhism, but Hinduism also has a cycle of death and rebirth, and freedom from this cycle is called moksha. Moksha can also refer to freedom from ignorance through self-realization, self-actualization, and self-knowledge. 
Bhagavan Sri Ramana Maharshi was an Indian sage who decided to pursue a religious life after what he called a death experience at age 16. In recounting the story, he said that he was sitting alone when suddenly and completely out of the blue it occurred to him, I shall be dead. I am dying. I mean, same though. <laughs> he goes on to say, There was no reason for feeling like that. It did not occur to me whether fear was proper or not. The thought of asking for the elders or the doctors did not come. What is dying? How to escape it? This alone was the problem. There were no other thoughts. Dying means the legs become stiff, lips become taut, eyes close, breath stops. So it came into experience due to the intensity of feeling. To me too, the legs became stiff, lips became taut, eyes closed, and breath stopped. But with consciousness not lost, everything was being sensed clearly. The activity of the sense organs having gone, the inward-turned perception became available. Even if this body dies, the I, consciousness, will not go. When the body is burnt and turned to ashes in the cremation ground, I will not become extinct, because I am not the body. Now the body is inert, insentient. I, on the other hand, am sentient. Therefore, death is to the inert body. I am the indestructible, conscious entity. When the body gives up its activities, and the activities of the senses are not there, the knowledge that is obtained is not born of the senses. The thing that is there after death is the eternal, real entity. In this way, in one moment, new knowledge accrued to me. Although he describes these thoughts and happenings in a sequence, he reiterated at the end of the story that the experience was completely spontaneous. When asked how long it took, people wanted to know precisely how many minutes <laughs> this spontaneous knowledge <laughs> took. He spoke of time as irrelevant. The moment existed outside of time. We kind of get that feeling in the Lila death scene, don't we? She has this whole realization and she talks through it for the sake of the show, but that takes way longer than it would actually take for that beam to strike the cockpit and disintegrate her. Yeah. Yeah, that description really struck me because Lila has her moment after the deadly attack on her mobile suit, mid-explosion, in fractions of a second. Yeah, neither of these stories precisely fit Lila's example, but they speak to the sudden moment of enlightenment or realization, and, to some degree, that association between the moment of enlightenment and death. I did not find any sources that pointed to nearness to death as causing moments of enlightenment. So if you've had a near-death experience and experienced a moment of enlightenment, please let us know. While Camille and Quattro are talking, they are interrupted by Torres, playing a whistle over the ship's intercom. What is that thing? It has a very distinctive sound and shape, and we've watched enough historical films and documentaries for it to feel familiar. I have seen that whistle before. I have heard that whistle before. <laughs> it turns out it is called a bosun's whistle, bosun's pipe, or bosun's call. For those of you who, like me, had read the term long before you ever heard it pronounced, it is pronounced bosun even when it's spelled boatswain. <laughs> Tom thinks this is funny because he like grew up around boats, and so he always knew it was bosun. And the first time he heard me say boatswain, he made fun of me. Hey, Nina, how do you think foxel is spelled? I don't even want to guess. Forecastle. How did you pronounce it again? Folksel. Folksel. Yep. 
Boats are stupid. <laughs> so this is a special kind of whistle used to pass commands when the noise of the sea, the weather, or even just the activity aboard the ship would make hearing voice commands difficult or impossible. And it has been in use since the 13th century. The pitch of the note played is dependent on the hand position around the whistle, from an open hand, lowest pitch, to a tightly closed fist, highest pitch. Some examples of its use include piping aboard a flag rank officer or important guest who is boarding the ship, all hands on deck, word to be passed, which is a command for silence with additional orders to follow, pipe down, which is a dismissal of all crew not currently on watch, and, I just realized, must be where we get the phrase, pipe down, from. <laughs> and carry on, which dismisses the crew to return to their duties. It was also used for haul. Since the crews of warships weren't allowed to sing work songs, the bosun or a bosun's mate would pipe a low tone for ready and a high tone for pull, alternating the two to keep the crew in rhythm. The specific patterns are likely to be the same or very similar in Japanese and American navies, as both modeled themselves on the British Navy. We tried to identify what call Torres is doing here, but we aren't sure. It's also possible that despite wanting to include this bit of naval trivia, they didn't choose a specific call to play. What do we have a recording of? <laughs> like, yeah. they're sitting in the studio. Like, what recordings do we have access to? Do you think they had a bosun's whistle? They might have. I assume the studio has a couple recordings of one rather than them having like a physical one. But it's possible one of them did if they had, if they were into boats or had been <laughs> in the Navy or had a dad or uncle who had been in the Navy. Mm -hmm. um, I wouldn't be surprised to learn that, you know, a Foley studio just had a massive library of weird instruments. The other thing about the bosun's call, the whistle, is it was used as a mark of rank. So, like, you could tell what ranks a person on a ship might be by whether or not they were wearing one. The mm. quartermaster wears one, the bosun wears one, the bosun's mate. The, there's a few people, but only those people wear it. So, Torres is, I believe, the navigator? Huh. Yeah. Okay, that's weird. A little bit weird. Whatever. They just wanted to include the weird whistle. I mean, maybe the rules have changed in the question mark number of years between now and the universal century. In honor of the life of Lila Milarira, the story of Atalanta, presented by Mobile Suit Breakdown. Atalanta, fleet of foot. Atalanta, swift of hand. Atalanta, sharp of tongue. In Arcadia where the woods were wild, a king who wanted a son abandoned a daughter. In Arcadian forests where the baby wailed, a she-bear nursed a girl child and taught her bear kind's arts of hunt and grapple. In deep woods, sacred to the goddess Artemis, Atalanta grew from girl to woman and learned the hunter's arts, the bow, the spear, the javelin, and the chase. Alone among women, she sailed with Jason on his Argo. Among all the greatest heroes of her age, she was swiftest, fiercest. 
The first men to seek the huntress as their prey were centaurs of the deep woods, all muscle and hair, as rough and evil as they were powerful. But Atalanta did not fear brutes like these. She drew her bow, she touched her arrows. Some were fletched with white feathers, some with black. The centaurs galloped after her, but crouching low she sprang high. As each passed beneath, groping at air, hooves snared by roots, she, falling, fired swift arrows. They buried themselves up to the white feathers. They buried themselves up to the black feathers. When her name was famous throughout the world, she returned to Arcadia where she had been born, to her father's kingdom to claim her inheritance. Now hero and princess both, suitors came from every part of Greece to win her hand. In the days before Helen, there was no more desired bride than the virgin huntress, the she-bear of Arcadia. Atalanta looked upon the men who sought to woo her and found not one fine man among them so she set them a test of their mettle. Behold it now, a racetrack, and two barefoot runners at one end. A javelin with a silver ring tied round its point to mark the finish line. One suitor at a time, Atalanta brought them there to race. By solemn oath, the first suitor to beat her to the finish would win her to be his bride. But when Atalanta won, and she always won, she snatched up the javelin and swift feet still flying, leapt, turned, and hurled the deadly barb at her pursuer, killing them as once she had killed the centaurs. The number of suitors dwindled. For weeks and then for months, no one came to Arcadia to wage their life in the hope of marriage. And still she waited for one fine man who could match her. Next time on episode 2.9, Political Considerations. We cover Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 8 and... You thought it was Emma, but it was I, Quattro! Is Char aboard the Argama? I didn't say that. If I said that, I'd be wrong. A secret board of shadowy figures. Hello, Haro! Great Zeon's ghost! McDaniel, you know the famous burger chain. And, my name is Jared Mesa. You killed my Lila, prepare to die. You will see the tears of time. Remember to do all of the podcast things. Subscribe and review Mobile Suit Breakdown wherever you get your podcasts. Then pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on Patreon, where you can find great bonus content, get access to the MSB Discord, get exclusive MSB merchandise, and, you know, support the podcast. You can also follow at Gundam Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, and like us at facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast for all kinds of extra content. And you should always check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all of our episodes, show notes, watch list, wish list, some other lists, and more. Plus, you can always email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. 
or just shout your wrong Gundam opinions to us in person by coming to scenic New York City and yelling, the robot fights are the important parts. You can fast forward through the talking on any busy street corner. We'll totally hear you. This week's Wrong Gundam Opinion comes from patron Turluk. Thanks, Turluk. The song used in the tribute is Vendetta by Stefan Kartenberg. The intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin, and the closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. playing in the where background. Where did that come from? <laughs> uh, where did that come from? <laughs> did her boyfriend accidentally poison himself with what he thought was her perfume? Yep. I thought, I thought that was going to happen. Is he dead now? Yep. That's my brand. Is it? Because you seem uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, but... I'm uncomfortable, but it's not like I don't want to be here. <laughs> That's a problem for future Mobile Suit Breakdown. Yep. Um, for present Mobile Suit Breakdown, we have an episode to record. We do. It's true. <clears throat> We've been half an hour before we I'm going to cut this in over you saying... Apologies. Apologies. <laughs> That's just a hard one to bleep, because if I bleep the whole thing, it sounds like you're saying something else. Mm. Like, it doesn't sound like you're saying she's such a It sounds like you might be saying she's such a Anybody who argues with you about that is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> like, you, you have said an unimpeachably true statement. Yeah, like... It is pronounced boson, even when it is... It is pronounced... Shut up, dog! <laughs> it is pronounced a boss. Shut up, you dog! <laughs> it's almost like it can hear us and it's mad. Yeah, everyone knows. I mean, it probably can hear us. Their hearing is really good. <laughs> the dog up there is probably like, Your Gundam opinions are. <laughs> Give me a podcast. <laughs>